You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi folks and welcome to episode 53 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. This is the show for February 2018 and I'm your host, Bart Bouchatz. This month I'm switching back to the ongoing series where I discuss a single photographic term in detail and sort of explain what it means. So the topic for today is simply focus. And I don't mean that in the art the art of arting sense of the word i mean that in the optics sense of the word in the physics sense of the word in the light rays coming together sense of the word uh, but before we get stuck into that um i do just want to take a moment and thank you all for your very positive feedback on um last month's show it was the first time i i switched from being quite factual in these solo shows to being really quite the opposite extremely subjective um and editorial, I guess, is probably a good word for it. If it was a newspaper, it would be an editorial show. And I was a bit worried about doing it because, well, it's very different to what we've done so far in this show. Uh, but you guys seem to enjoy it. So uh, I will add a few of those into the mix. I'm not changing the show to be only editorial or opinion. But at the same time, I guess it fits into this mix. So I think... This podcast has sort of settled into a format of having no format, and maybe that's a good thing, because it leaves me free to just do whatever I find exciting or interesting about photography. So I think, going forward, the format for this show is whatever I feel like doing any given month, and that's just how it'll be, I guess. Okay, so with the housework out of the way, not housework, that's not quite the right word, but anyway, with the preambles out of the way, let's get stuck into focus. Okay, so we all sort of have a, a a vague feeling of what focus is about. So we can look at a picture and we can say, that is in focus. Or we can say, that is out of focus. And I guess the um, defining difference between in focus and out of focus is how sharp something is. In other words, how not blurry it is, how the opposite of fuzzy it is. Uh, but actually, to make that happen... There's quite a lot going on, and it, it's all about lenses. It's all about the thing at the front of the camera. So, the, you know, at the most fundamental, the most basic level, a camera takes light from the universe, shoves it through a lens, and focuses it onto some sort of light-sensitive medium, which then records that light in some sort of permanent way. Be that with chemicals on a strip of film or a piece of glass or be that some sort of digital sensor that uses some sort of you know electronics to do the capturing. The point is, a camera is basically a lens focusing light onto something that's light-sensitive. But that really does mean that focusing light is absolutely positively central to photography. So that's why I think it's worth dedicating an entire show to, the, to sort of understanding what is actually going on when you focus light. So you have something in front of your camera that you want to take a picture of and there's light rays coming out of it in all directions. And those light rays, some of them will pass through your lens and if you're just you know, at a random distance from the lens then some of those light rays will cross over the, the film sensor at one point and another light ray from the same point on the object will pass through the film plane at another point. So you get 
blur because the two photons of light left the top left corner of whatever it is taking a picture of at the same point. And when they get through the lens and they strike your piece of film or your digital sensor, they're at different points. Hence, the image is blurry because different pieces of light coming from the same point are scattered across the film. So the top left corner is spread out over half the image and the bottom left corner is spread out over half the image. What you get is a great big blurry mess because all the light from all the points is just spread out everywhere. So an image is in focus when the lens takes all the light from one point and brings it back together to another point behind the lens. So you have, let's let's just pick the top left-hand corner of a playing card. All the light from that top left-hand corner goes through the lens, so it's it spread, you know, it's lots of different light particles coming out. They strike the lens, the lens pulls them together, and they come back together at a point behind the lens. And then you move down one, you know, atom, and then the same happens again, and this time they come together. Basically what ends up happening is that you have a two-dimensional plane of focus that's parallel to the center line of the lens. So everything that's straight above or straight below your one thing that's in focus is also above or below the point on the other side of the lens. So you imagine two slices of the universe, one in front of the lens and one behind the lens. So all the light that was, you know, in focus, that all the light from the thing in front of the lens comes into focus at the same strip of reality behind the lens. And if you put your light-sensitive medium on that little slice of reality, on that plane, as we call it, then you can capture a sharp image. And making that happen is what focus is all about. Now, you might have just sort of interpreted what I said as something along the lines of a lens focuses light onto a plane. But that's actually missing a really, really important subtlety. It focuses light onto infinitely many planes. So the distance behind the lens, where the light comes back together, where the light comes into focus, depends on the distance in front of the lens that the light set off from. So if you place an item one meter in front of the lens, there is exactly one plane behind the lens where that light comes into focus. But if you move the subject, so the light is coming from somewhere a little bit further away or closer to the lens, then the matching point behind the lens also moves. So that means there's infinitely many places behind the lens where something comes into focus. And that means you have work to do because you need to arrange for it that the thing you want the photograph of is at the appropriate distance, or rather that the distances all line up so that the thing you want to photograph, the light from that, comes into focus at exactly the point in space where your piece of film or your digital sensor is. And that act of aligning reality so that, you know, the light from the thing you want to focus or a photograph of comes back together at exactly the point where your film sensor is or your piece of film or whatever, that's the act of focusing. And that's that's what it's all about today. Now, before we go any further, I actually need to take a little a little pause here and just clarify something. So I'm just going to talk about lenses today. Um, and what I mean, I guess, when I'm talking about it, particularly from a theoretical point of view, is sort of the imagined perfect lens that we would have all dealt with in school. So you can mentally picture it as being like, you know, a perfect magnifying glass. And whenever you were tracing ray diagrams in, you know, secondary school science class, you, you were dealing with these imagined perfect lenses. Now, what we screw onto the front of our cameras looks nothing like Sherlock Holmes's magnifying glass. 
And the reason for that is that in the real world, when you try to make a lens out of actual pieces of physical glass, they don't behave exactly like the theoretical lenses that we we drew and imagined and wrote mathematical equations for when we were in school, especially if you studied science. In reality, real-world glass has all of these little niggling annoyances that mean that it doesn't quite behave like it does in theory. So one of those effects is that the properties of the lens aren't the same all the way from light hitting the very middle of the lens, the thickest part, to light hitting the edges of the lens, the thinnest part. And so what that can mean is that your focus can, we would describe it as falling off. So something might be perfectly tack sharp when it's in the middle of the photograph, uh, but something on the same plane starts to fall, you know, start to become blurrier and blurrier as you move further and further away from the middle of the photograph. That's called, you know, your focus falls off, we say. Well, that's because of imperfections in the lens. So in theory, that shouldn't happen if you had an actual perfect lens. But in reality, it does happen. Another annoyance is that real-world physics, you know, real-world actual pieces of glass don't treat every colour of light, every wavelength of light, in exactly the same way. They bend them all teeny tiny little bit differently to each other. Which means that if you shine, you know, a real, you know, the real world is full of different colours of light, what you end up with is, you know, the blues get spread out a bit from the greens and the reds and the yellows, etc. So you sort of end up with uh, chromatic aberration, we call it. Basically, coloury fringes around things that should be sharply in focus. And so all of these are deeply undesirable. And so what a camera manufacturer, or rather a lens manufacturer, has to do is they have to use real-world materials to come as close as they possibly can to simulating a theoretically perfect lens. And what that means is you don't have a single Sherlock Holmes magnifying glass in front of your camera. Instead, you have this really complex collection of different shapes and types and you know actual compositions of glass arranged together in a complex optical system that we call a lens, but is physically made up of lots and lots of different pieces. But the thing is, all of those complex different optical components, the whole point of them is that they sim- that they come as close as possible to emulating a single perfect lens. And so when we're talking about them today, we're going to pretend they are a single perfect lens. But in reality, to get the effect of a single perfect lens, or as close as we can possibly get to the effect of a single perfect lens, what we actually have is a really complicated piece of optics, you know, inside that tube that we screw into the front of our camera. So I guess I say, you know, we're going to talk as if it's theoretically perfect. In reality, it took some optical engineers oh so much time, effort and work to make something which, even with all of that work and effort, only approximates a perfect lens. But, you know, modern optics is pretty darn good, so it approximates a perfect lens pretty darn well. With that little caveat out of the way, I now want to deal with another potential point of confusion, which is that, annoyingly, in photography, we have two very similar-sounding terms, which are both measured in the basic fundamental unit of the meter. They're both measured as lengths or distances, and yet they're completely different, and they almost sound the same. What am I talking about? I'm talking about focal length and focus distance. Focal Focus, they sound like synonyms for each other. Length and distance, they also sound like synonyms for each other. So you might be forgiven for assuming that a focal length and a focus distance are two different words for the same thing. Oh, no, they're not. They are, in fact, very different things. Very, very different things indeed. Uh, One of them is a fundamental property of the lens, and another one is a property of how you have arranged some sort of sensor, a lens, and a subject. 
So let's start with focal length. And focal length is a fundamental property of the lens. And again, when I say lens, I mean our simulated perfect theoretical lens. So if you buy a Nifty 50, what makes it a Nifty 50? What makes it a Nifty 50 is that it has a focal length of 50 millimeters. So again, we're measuring in terms of meters, 50 millimeters. Um, you may buy a wide-angle lens, which might be 28 millimeters, 10 millimeters, 18 millimeters, whatever. We're used to talking about lenses in terms of having a focal length of so many millimeters. Usually millimeters, he says. Uh, so that is focal length. Now, we could also say, I have focused my lens to 10 meters. That's a focused distance. So that's what we're going to describe as fundamentally different in a minute. So getting back to focal length. The way a focal length is a way of mathematically describing how much a lens bends light. So the world's least effective lens is a perfectly flat sheet of glass. It bends light completely and utterly not at all. So that can be said to have a focal length of infinity. And then the shorter the focal length, the more the light gets bent. So a focal length of 50 bends the light more than a focal length of 100. Which bends the light more than a focal length of 200, you get the idea. Um, so how do we measure focal length? Why do we measure it as a length? Well, the way you measure the bendiness... Well, okay, bendiness is not the right word. That sounds like I'm flexing lenses. The way you measure how how much a lens bends light or how strong a lens is, is that you shine perfectly parallel beams of light into the front of the lens. We call it collimated light. And then you measure how far behind the lens do those parallel lines coming in cross each other. And you can visualize this, actually, if you imagine you have a lens bolted to a bench and you have two laser pointers. And you set the laser pointers up so they're parallel to each other and one of them hits the left edge of the lens and one of them hits the right edge of the lens. So you have two parallel red lines coming to the lens. They strike the lens and the lens will then bend those two rays of light so that they, assuming it's a convex lens, they'll bend the light so that they move closer to each other. And at some point behind the lens, those two laser beams will cross. And that point where those two laser beams cross, the distance between the middle of the lens and that point is the focal length of the lens. And it doesn't matter how many, t you know, how you move those laser beams, as long as they remain parallel and as long as they continue to shine through that same lens, the point they cross will continue to be that single point. So that means the focal length of the lens is just a property of how much it bends light. Now, focus distance then is a whole other kettle of fish. So, like we were saying, there's infinitely many, you know, so if you have a lens, there's infinitely many possible things you might want to focus on in front of the lens. And there's infinitely many matching points behind the lens where that light comes back into focus with itself. So, in reality, if you're taking a picture, your light-sensitive material is going to be at a distance from the center of the lens, behind the lens, right? It's always going to be somewhere, right? It's going to be at a certain distance behind the lens at any given point in time. 
That means that at every point in time, there is a matching distance in front of the lens where the light from that distance comes into focus at the point where your piece of film or your sensor is at that instance in time. So at that instance in time, the focus distance is the distance from the center of the lens to that thing that is in focus. And so if you move the lens relative to the camera sensor, then the distance in front of the lens to wherever it is is now focused onto the sensor changes. So the focus distance changes as you move the lens relative to the sensor or as you move the sensor relative to the lens. So it doesn't matter. As you change the distance between the sensor and the lens, the distance in front of the lens where the, you know, where, where focus is moves. And we call that distance from the front of the lens to the thing that is in focus, we call that the focus distance. So if I focus my lens to 10 meters, that means that if I take a sheet of newspaper and I put it 10 meters from the center of my lens, that sheet of newspaper will be in focus on the film or digital sensor inside my camera. So the focus distance is changeable because if I turn the focus knob or if I use autofocus or whatever, if I somehow you know, make the thing change focus, then I need to move my sheet of newspaper in or out to match. So focus distance moves depending on how you twiddle the focus dial. Your focal length is a property of the lens. Now, where things really start to play with people's head is, well, we don't have single Sherlock Holmes style slabs of glass as our lenses. We have these complex optical systems which are made up of lots of different pieces of glass. And if you engineer your complex optical system with lots of pieces of glass in such a way that it's possible to move those complex systems relative, you know, parts of that complex systems relative to each other after manufacture, then you can actually change the fundamental properties of the lens anytime you like because you're just rearranging the parts. Well, a zoom lens does that. It actually changes the lens. So it becomes... Depending on how you move the components, it becomes a theoretical or it becomes an approximation of a theoretically perfect lens that bends light by a different amount. So you're actually changing a fundamental property of the lens by moving part of the lens relative to itself as you twist the fo- the zoom dial on a lens. You're actually changing the focal length. You're changing how much the lens bends light. So a zoom lens that's 55 to 80 millimeters can bend light as much as a single theoretical lens that focuses light, you know, that brings collimated light together in 55 millimeters, or if you twiddle the knob, it changes so that it doesn't bring the light together until it's out to 85 millimeters or whatever. So that's why focal length gets really confusing, because we have these the ability to change the fundamental property of our lens after the fact, because our lens isn't a single piece of glass, it's actually many pieces of glass pretending to be a single piece of glass or pretending to be a theoretically perfect single piece of glass. So zoom lenses add to the confusion of focal length versus focus distance. But a focal length is a proper is a measure of how much the lens bends glass. A focus distance is a measure from how far in front of the lens do I need to put something so that it will be in focus on my digital sensor or my piece of film. I hope that's clear. Um, difficult concepts, but fingers crossed I've at least disambiguated that. Okay, so let's just quickly recap where we've arrived at. So we have a lens, we have a piece of film or a light-sensitive medium sensor of some sort, and we have a thing we'd like to take a photograph of, or potentially many different things. And the act of focusing is moving the lens relative to the film or the digital sensor 
so that the light from the thing we want to take a picture of comes into focus at exactly the point where our digital sensor or our piece of film is. So the act of focusing is moving the lens forward and back a little bit so that light from the thing we want to take a picture of comes into focus at exactly the point where our sensor slash piece of film is. That's what we're trying to achieve. Okay, with that said, let's move on to the next term we need to discuss, which is something called infinite focus. So in reality, in not reality, in a an imagined mathematically perfect universe, or an abstract mathematical universe, probably a better word, when something is infinitely far away, then two light rays coming from the same point on that infinitely distant thing will actually arrive at the lens in parallel. So if we imagine our hypothetical playing card, we have two photons of light which leave the top left corner and they, you know, you'd imagine them diverging, but because they're infinitely far away, by the time they get to you, they're effect- they are parallel to each other. That's what it means to be infinitely far away. Kind of a bit of a head wrecker, but that is what it means. When you're infinitely far away, light rays arrive in parallel. So if light rays arrive in parallel, well, that's interesting because that means that the point we need to put the film sensor is the focal, the focal length of the lens, which is a, by, just by the by. Um, and so then you get a, a sharp image of that infinitely distant thing. Now, in the real world, coming out of mathematical, you know, ivory tower of academia into the real world, there's nothing at infinity. But that doesn't actually matter. Because in the real world, you have this concept of being effectively infinite. Because once two light rays are arriving indistinguishably close to parallel, well, they may as well be parallel. Which means that if you set your lens to focus stuff that's parallel, then the stuff that is indistinguishable from parallel is also in focus. Or at least indistinguishable from not in focus. So effectively in focus. So in the real world, there is a distance in front of the lens where light is parallel enough to be effectively infinite. And everything from that distance further away is also in focus for free because it's even closer to being exactly in parallel. So the nice thing is that that distance isn't all that far in the grand scheme of the universe. You know, a a mountaintop or even a hilltop or whatever that's a mile or two away is that effectively infinite focus. So the mountain behind it at 10 miles away is also in focus, and the clouds behind it at 100 miles away are also in focus, and the moon behind it at thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away, millions of miles away, is also in focus. And the galaxy behind that at, you know, millions of light years away is also in focus. So when you set your lens to focus to infinity, the amount of stuff that's actually effectively in focus is huge. It's not just stuff infinitely far away. It's anything more than a few miles away, or less even sometimes. So infinite focus is very important because the other real-world problem is that there's a limit on how far you can actually move your lens, right? I can't take my physical lens and move it infinitely further and more distant away from my piece of film. Like, it's all stuck inside the camera body, the sensor or the piece of film, and the lens are physically bolted together. So there's actually a limit to how far I can move them. They have a limited range of motion, which means that there's a limit actually to what what in the real world can and can't be focused on. 
But when you're making an ordinary lens, a regular run-of-the-mill lens, the camera manufacturer will, or the lens manufacturer, not a camera, you know, anyway, the lens manufacturer will engineer that lens in such a way that within that possible range of travel, that within the case, infinite focus is achievable. Your lens will get to infinite focus. It means that everything, you know, from a few kilometers to everything behind that can be focused by the lens. So if infinite focus is reachable, then the only thing that sort of limits what you can do with that lens is on the other end. So it can go out to infinity, but there's going to be a limit at some point to how close you can focus. And so regular lenses, the only constraint on what can and can't be in focus is there is a point where you get, bring the camera closer and closer and closer, you're going to get to a point where you can't get focus anymore. There's a ma- there's a minimum distance there has to be between your lens and the thing you're taking a picture of. And if you go any closer, the lens is just physically incapable of ever getting that light into focus onto your sensor or piece of film. So that's why when you're buying a lens, you'll see the nearest focus distance mentioned. But generally speaking, not the furthest, because they all go out to infinity as long as they're regular, ordinary, run-in-the-mill lenses. Now, what that means is that it's really hard to get lenses that work really, really close. It's an engineering problem that's really difficult. And that's why we have special lenses designed for the sole job of taking pictures of things that are very, very close to each other. And what the engineer is allowed to do when trying to design a so-called macro lens is the engineer is allowed to make it so the lens can't reach infinity. They give up on infinity because the actual aim of this lens, this lens's role in life, is specifically to take pictures of things that are really close. So instead of trying desperately to make sure it reaches infinite focus, okay, fine, we're not going to reach infinite focus, we don't care, because in actual fact we can focus into a few millimeters in front of the camera lens or whatever, so we can get you right in close, but the price we've had to pay for that is that we're not going to reach all the way to infinity. And that's why you can't just slap a macro lens on and use it for everything else. A macro lens has been engineered so that it can focus really, really close. But it's made all sorts of compromises to make that possible. And that's why you can't just take a normal lens and try to take a picture of something that's, you know, right up to your camera, because it can't focus in that close, because it's been engineered to work well for stuff that's far away. So anyway, that's the difference in your different kind of lenses. And infinite focus distance is important. That's why if you have a lens that has a physical focus dial that's labelled with distances. Actually, if you have a physical lens that's labelled with distances, that's the focus distance that's labelled. And if you you will find if you have labelled focus knob, it will have an infinity symbol. Well, that's the point where you're setting the lens such that it will focus parallel light together, which means that everything that's close enough to parallel to be undistinguishable from parallel is now in focus. Anyway. That's neither here nor there. So, that's infinite focus. Now, the next really important concept we have is depth of field, which is, again, a real-world limitation that's creeping in here. So, if we go back to our mathematical ivory tower, our sort of imagined, idealized universe, then, mathematically speaking, the focus plane for any lens in any given configuration is infinitely thin. I have my photosensitive medium at some distance behind my lens. There is one distance, there is one parallel plane somewhere in front of the lens where everything's in focus, and that parallel plane is a plane. It's a 2D slice of the universe, and it is infinitely thin. Now, in reality, we can't tell 
that something is infinitesimally blurred. We we don't we can't see to that level. So in reality, there's a there, there's an amount of fuzziness that's perfectly acceptable because we can't even distinguish it. So that means that in reality, it's not a an infinitely thin slice through the universe that's in focus. It's a chunk of the universe that's in focus, and the quality of that focus sort of falls off away from its center. And that means that there's some sort of acceptable level of focus, and you can actually mathematically calculate the acceptable level of focus using something called a circle of confusion, which is a really darn good name because it is quite confusing. Um, But the point is that in reality, when we're looking through our viewfinder or at the finished photograph... Although the lens, the whole system is focused at a single infinitely thin plane, in reality, there's a whole bunch more in focus. And the distance between the nearest thing to the front of the lens that's in focus and the furthest thing from the front of the lens that's in focus is called the depth of field or the depth of focus. So the nearest thing to the camera that's in focus and the furthest thing in focus, the distance between those two, is your DOF, your depth of field. Now, your depth of field actually depends on quite a few things. So your depth of field is something that artistically is very important to you a lot of the time. That beautiful portrait shot where the background is out of focus, well, that that's controlling your depth of field. So three things affect your depth of field. And as a general rule, in any given situation, some of them are easy to manipulate and some of them are really hard to manipulate. So the first one is really hard to manipulate because the only way you can manipulate it is with getting a different camera. So your depth of field is very strongly affected by the physical size of your light-sensitive thingy, be it your piece of film or your digital sensor. The smaller your piece of film or the smaller your digital sensor, the deeper your depth of field. The more of the universe that's in focus, the bigger the distance between the nearest thing that's in focus and the furthest thing that's in focus. Now, that's great for landscapes and things. It's really annoying if you want that cool, smooth portrait look from a camera phone. Because a camera phone is a teeny, weeny, weeny, tiny sensor, so its, its depth of field is naturally deep. Now, it's also why, at a sort of a a less extreme level, why it's easier to get a beautiful, smooth background, a blurry, out-of-focus, pleasing background with a full-frame sensor than with a crop sensor. Because a full-frame sensor is bigger, so its depth of field is naturally smaller. Uh, But again, you can't really change the size of your sensor unless you change your camera. So yes, it affects it. And I mean, it's because of that effect that to get nice portraits out of a camera phone we are forced to resort to some serious, you know, mathematical and and engineering trickery. We end up putting two lenses and then mathematically combining the images together to figure out how much depth there is and then to simulate the blur there would be if we had a bigger sensor. I mean, it's we end up doing some serious workarounds here to deal with the fact that in reality, a small sensor has a really deep depth of field, whether you like it or not. And we don't like it because we want those nice portraits, so we have to work around that limitation through engineering and mathematics simulation okay the other thing that affects your depth of field is your focus distance if you focus your camera at infant focus then all the universe except for some distance between you and that minimum is actually in focus which is actually an infinite distance 
because uh, the universe goes on to infinity. So if you focus to infinity, there's actually infinitely many things in focus. Whereas if you focus on the nearest possible thing that your camera can focus on, it's going to be very, very little in focus. Uh, your depth of field goes down the closer in you focus to something. And that's that's why... So if you if you stand close to a street sign and focus on it, then the background falls out of focus. If you walk back 10 meters, focus on the same street sign, the background is in focus now because the focus distance has changed because you've walked. <clears throat> and the closer you are to the thing, the shallower the depth of field, the further you are, the deeper the depth of field gets. And that is why macro photography is so darn hard because you're so darn close. So that depth of field becomes pancake thin or paper thin and you end up actually really struggling and you end up having to do focus stacking and all these kinds of things to deal with that fact. So the closer you focus, the shallower your depth of field. The further you focus, the deeper your depth of field. And then the last thing that affects your depth of field is your lens aperture. In other words, the bigger the hole through which the light enters your lens, the shallower the depth of field. And this is all to do with um, diffraction effects. And we talked about it in great, great detail in episode 50, which was all about aperture. So I'm not going to dig into that again. So size of sensor, you don't really get to control. Small sensors, deep depth of fields, big sensors, small depth of field, hence your full frame sensor giving those nice, beautiful portraits. Your focus distance, the closer you get to something, the, the more your depth of field shrinks. And then your lens aperture. So basically big opening means small focal ratio means shallow depth of field. So F4, much shallower depth of field than F22. Right, so that brings me to the last topic I want to discuss today, which is a potentially confusing term, but it's actually kind of cool. This is called the hyperfocal distance. So, for every lens and camera combination, there's a distance you can turn the focusing dial to where the edge of the depth of field, so the furthest away edge of the depth of field, just touches infinity. So the, the furthest thing away that you can get into focus is or that you consider to be focused, is just infinity. So parallel lines are just considered in focus. They're at the very, very edge of your depth of field. Well, at that point in time, you're at the hyperfocal distance. And what you have done there is you have absolutely maximized how much stuff is in focus. So that is the closest distance to you that you can touch infinity. So that means that stuff that's close to you is in focus and all the way out to infinity, remains in focus. So that is the absolute maximum that you can stretch your depth of field. And you can mathematically determine what what that focus distance is, because it's, it's, it's a function of your lens and the size of your sensor. And so there's lots of apps in, in the various app stores that allow you to calculate hyperfocal distances. You basically say, I have a, you know, a Nikon blah, 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 or a Canon blah, 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 and I'm using this lens. And it will tell you your hyperfocal distance is blah meters. If you then take the focus dial, twist it to blah meters, then you have set your lens in such a way that infinity is just in focus and as much as possible else is in focus too. And the reason you would want to do that is, well, multifold. Let's, let's say you, you're in a situation where you can't be refocusing all the time, but the stuff you're taking a picture of is never going to get too close. Then just set your lens at the hyperfocal and shoot. Don't refocus. Just set your lens at the hyperfocal and shoot, and you will get as, as good as you're going to get for not focusing. And actually, if the thing is any reasonable distance away from you, it'll work perfectly. 
Another reason you might want the hyperfocal is because you're a landscape photographer and you're trying to get a sense of depth into your photograph. And to get a sense of depth, you want multiple layers. You want something nearby to give a character of what, what, what the, this part of the universe looks like up close. You know, a nice flower, the, the hedgerow, a tree, something close by in focus. And maybe something in the mid-ground, you know, a field stretching out into the distance castle on the horizon and then you want something behind it some mountains or some clouds or whatever so what you need is a really 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 deep depth of field to give you all of these layers to give you this sense of depth in your landscape and so a technique you can use for that is to figure out what the hyperfocal is for your particular combination of camera and lens and to put the camera into manual focus mode and physically twist the focus knob until it scale reads whatever it told told you the hyperfocal distance was. And the hyperfocal, well, no, the hyperfocal may or may not be written on the lens. It's conceivable. So if you have a crop factor lens for Nikon, then the sensor size is exactly the same for all Nikons that lens is going to physically screw into. So it is theoretically possible for the manufacturer to mark the hyperfocal on the, on the uh, barrel of the lens. So some lenses may or may not have the hyperfocal marked. Um, but even if they don't, you get an app, you figure out what it is, and you do it. Just dial the lens. Now, the, the I guess this is slightly off topic, but it's, it's actually probably not a bad point to end on. When I'm choosing a lens to buy, one of the most important things that I look for is a focus distance scale. So a cheap lens will not have a scale of distances on it, right? It will, if it's a zoom lens, it will have, um, you know, sort of a dial that says what what you have set the focal length to, but it won't have a focus distance scale. Now, I will never buy a lens without a focus distance scale because when I'm doing astrophotography, I want to turn off autofocus and turn the focus knob until the lens is focused at infinity, which will be marked on the distance scale. Uh, the other thing I will want to do is if I'm shooting landscapes, I will actually want to use an app, read my hyperfocal for that particular lens, and I will want to turn off autofocus and dial in that exact distance. Another time a distance scale is great is if you want to take still lifes. Well, you can measure. Your camera will have its focus plane marked, um, sorry, it's lens plane marked on the... Um, marked on the camera body. So it's a line on a circle. And if you physically measure with a tape measure from the line on a circle to the thing that you want to take a picture of, it will, and you read it off your measuring tape, if you turn the dial on your lens to exactly the same distance, then it will be in focus. So um, you know, that is another reason you want the dial. So basically, you, you generally, you want a dial. If, you want to, if you're really going to get serious about focus, about taking manual control, about not relying on autofocus, you really do want the dial. Uh, but you don't always have the luxury of the dial, so so be it. Uh, but as I say, when I'm buying a lens, I will never, I will, I will do my damnedest to avoid buying one that doesn't have a distance scale on it, because I want to be able to actually set it to a specific known focus distance. Okay, well that brings us to the end of what I had planned to talk to you about today. Um, I hope I did an okay job of explaining that. It does get a bit complicated, particularly that annoying difference between focal length and focus distance but I'm hoping we've sorted that out for people uh, anyway 
you will find sort of bullet point show notes that I use to gather my thoughts on this over in the show notes at lets-talk.ie. I think I promised in the last episode that I'd have a new way of supporting the show. So if you go to lets-talk.ie, you'll find a header in the sidebar that says support the show with different options for supporting the show. And I'm pretty sure I promised there would be another option, which would be a tip jar. Unfortunately, my tip jar hit a teeny-weeny stumbling block in that, uh, yes, it turns out that the service I was planning to use for it does indeed support tip jars. However, only in the United States, Great Britain, Australia, and one or two other countries. And the small set of countries it does not include the Republic of Ireland. So I'm afraid I actually can't put up that tip jar I wanted to put up. Um, so we're left, unfortunately, with the same support mechanisms we had before. So... If you would like to support the show, the single simplest and easiest thing you can do is tell people about it. Tell your friends, tweet about it, recommend it to people who you think would enjoy the show, or the next level of difficulty is write a review. Just go to iTunes or your podcast of choice, review the show, give it a star rating, and write a few words saying you know what you like, why you like it, etc., etc. Um, obviously, I... You know, you don't have to say nice things, but I'd prefer if you did. And I'd also say that if you have criticisms of the show, email them to me. Uh, podcasting at bartofficer.net is my email address. You won't find it written online because I don't like spam. But it's podcasting at bartofficer.net. B-A-R-T-I-F-I-C-E-R.net. Uh, or you can use the feedback form at letstalk.ie. Uh, because, I, you know, I love constructive criticism. So, you know, I'm not promising I'll do what you recommend, but I certainly want to hear your recommendations and your thoughts on what you like and what you don't like. But, you know, constructive criticism, not I think you're a gumbean. Right? Don't care. If you think I'm a gumbean, don't listen. But if you have something constructive to say, I actually do want to hear. Okay, so they're the non-financial ways of supporting the show, and they're deeply valued when people do that. Uh, if you want to help with the physics, you know, the practicalities, just like, you know, in the real world, a lens can only move forward and backwards so much. In the real world, a podcast needs to be hosted somewhere, a podcast takes software, a podcast, you know, there are costs in running a podcast. And I'm, you know, my, I do this for fun, I don't do this for a business, but I, I need I'll be honest, I need podcasting to be a break-even thing because I'm at a point, you know, things in life are such that it, it can't cost me money. Uh, and that's why this show is entirely listener-supported. So the only income I get from this show is from you guys because I don't actually want an advertiser because if I have an advertiser, then I have to give their opinion rather than my opinion. And I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. And so far, I've been able to make this show work with listener support. So yay. Anyway, if you want to help with those annoying practicalities, there's a bunch of ways you can do so. The simplest to understand, I guess, is a simple PayPal button. You click the button, you type in some amount of money, and you click send, and the money comes to me. Very straightforward. Uh, PayPal is great for, you know, single donations that are more than $5. Um, PayPal is awful at teensy, you know, at, at small, regular donations. You know, I'll give Bart a book a show. I mean, that would be such a great way to support the show but paypal is so the wrong tool for that kind of a setup because if you give me a dollar or a euro let's say by the time paypal takes its fees what will be left is about 28 cent paypal will get 70 something and i'll get 20 something so it's, it's a really inefficient way of supporting the show which is why i like patreon so much because patreon uses the, you know, basically it aggregates, use aggregation to get around the small payment problem on PayPal. 
Um, the idea is you go to Patreon, you sign up with them, and you pledge a certain small dollar amount for every show I manage to publish. I will publish exactly two shows a month, one photography, one Apple. So if you would like to give me $5 a month, pledge $2.50 per show. If you would like to give me $1 a month, pledge $0.50 cent a show. You get the idea. Uh, and then at the end of the month, all of your donations for all the podcasts you support will come out of your credit card or PayPal account in one transaction. So there's one set of fees paid. And then all of the contributions by all of you guys to me comes to me as one single transaction from Patreon. So again, one set of fees paid instead of, you know, destroy you at fees. And the end result is that on income of approximately 100-ish dollars a month at the moment, about 90-ish of those make it all the way to me. I'm being very roundabouty here. But basically, instead of it being way more than half goes to PayPal, it's like, you know, less than a tenth goes on fees. So it, it works. It's great. And that's why Patreon absolutely rocks. It's also regular and reliable, which is just the way bills tend to be. So again, it works both ways. And then there are other ways you can support the show. There's a Zazzle store where there's merchandise. You basically walk around you know, as a walking, talking advertisement for the show, and you get some physical stuff, and I get a certain percentage commission for having sent you over to Zazzle. To be honest, none of you are using it. I have some really nice mugs, but you know, anyway, that Zazzle store may go away. But for now, it still exists. And then there are two particularly nerdy ways of supporting the show. You, I have affiliate codes up for two tech companies that I use. In fact, they're used to host this very show. Um, so you have DigitalOcean, which is a hosting provider, and they've recently actually in- doubled the RAM on all of their plans, which is fantastic. Um, so if you sign up to DigitalOcean using my affiliate code, you will get DigitalOcean credit, and I will get DigitalOcean credit, but only if you actually use the service. So again, don't click that link unless you actually need a web server or some sort of virtual host somewhere, some sort of Linux machine in the cloud. And then the other one is the domain registrar, Hover.com, whom I use for registering lots of domains. Now, they don't do .ie, so this actual podcast one isn't there, but I have plenty of domains on um, Hover. And again, affiliate code, if you use that affiliate code, I basically get credit for sending you Hover's way. Now, unfortunately, Hover don't share in the same way that DigitalOcean do, but either way, you get to have a domain and I get to have some money from Hover for sending you their way. If you need a domain, this is a great way to support the show. If you don't need a domain, this is absolutely pointless. Okay, I think I've prattled on for long enough. So thank you very much for listening. You'll find the show notes at letstalk.ie. I've been your host, Bart Bouchotts, and you can find more about me at bartb.ie. And until next time, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Amazon, Google, Apple, Android, iOS, Alexa, Siri, technology, sci-fi, video games, tablets, computers, flash drives, toys, weather, and general silliness. Geekiest show ever, every week on the MyMac Podcasting Network. 